You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Kelly is a health psychologist, an award-winning lecturer at Stanford University, a leading expert on the mind-body relationship. Her work integrates the latest findings of psychology, neuroscience, and medicine with contemplative practices of mindfulness and compassion from the traditions of Buddhism and yoga. She is the author of The Willpower Instinct and Yoga for Pain Relief. Kelly will be featured at Emerging Women Live 2013 from October 10th to the 13th in Boulder, Colorado. In today's episode, Kelly and I spoke about willpower, how to create the desire for change, self-acceptance and acceptance of the present moment, and how that differs from desire. Curiosity being a key ingredient for science as well as intuition. The over-masculinization of science. And finally, Kelly shared how she overcame a debilitating fear in her life using these techniques. Here is my conversation, True Willpower, How to Create Change Through Self-Acceptance, Desire, and the Present Moment with the intelligent and mindful Kelly McGonigal. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, how are you doing? Great. It's uh, so great to have you today. I'm excited about our conversation. I am too. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I thought we'd just launch into the concept, which is the subject of your work and your latest book being The Willpower Instinct. And the, the term willpower has... It's just such a trigger. It's almost, um, it's edgy. And I was wondering if you could start by telling us what you mean by willpower. Yeah, and I want to first even just acknowledge how edgy that word is, because it it seems to imply a kind of judgment. And when most of us talk about our own willpower, it's almost always in the context of not having any. Uh, And it can almost point to a a sense of lack or an adequacy. Like I just don't have what it takes to meet the challenges in my life or to reach my goals. And uh, I kind of wanted to reverse that, that sense that we have. Um, I actually like using the word willpower now, even though it often triggers this immediate sense of, Oh God, that's something I don't have. And please don't remind me of how little self-control I have. Um, Because when I was working as a, a health psychologist and a health educator, um, the Stanford School of Medicine would send me around to help people make behavior change and talk about stress management and healthy choices. And everywhere I went, people told me they already knew what they were supposed to do and they didn't think they could do it. In fact, they said they couldn't do it. They, they couldn't make the changes. They were just, they felt like failures at the whole self-improvement game. Um, and I thought this is something we need to, to radically rethink. Um, but so many people felt like they simply did not have the inner resources to do what mattered most to them to improve their health and to find greater meaning and joy in, in their careers and in their family. Um, so, so I'm kind of, you know, like restaking a claim here for willpower and define it as the ability to do what matters most, even when it's difficult, 
right. even when you have self-doubt, even when you are exhausted. Uh, and to actually choose the thing that is most meaningful and important uh, and, and all of the resources that allow us to make that choice. Right. Well, here's a question I have. What do you think is necessary to actually create change? So it's one thing to say, oh, I know these things. These are good for me. I need to make this change. And yet we don't do it. What is that ingredient that first kicks off the action and the habits? Like, how do we t- like cultivate that desire for change? Yeah, I talk about four sets of strengths that support willpower. And the first one is what I call want power. And it's different than what you just said. You know, you said, oh, I know this would be good for me. And if, like, how motivating does that sound? This Not- would be good <laughs> for me. It almost sounds like somebody else is telling you what you should do. Right. And uh, want power instead is that kind of like this, this inner drive, maybe an, an intuition, uh, a sense of meaning or purpose that that really comes from within and allows you to, to have a kind of vision for what you want in your life, what you want to contribute to the world, how you want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are really good at knowing what we should do. Most of us could have a whole list of what we're supposed to be doing, what we should do to prevent cancer and make our kids, you know, turn out better and all the things we know we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's different than, than truly deeply knowing mm-hmm. what your vision for your life is and what your core values are, what your most important goals are. So when I have people think about increasing their willpower, I often will start people there with some, some real time of reflection to think about what matters most. And, uh, and to give you an example of where most people are starting from, uh, a few years ago, Oprah had me redesign, make over somebody's New Year's resolution. Mm-hmm. And I had so much empathy for this woman who had made the same resolution year after year to become a better cook because she had this vision that that's what a good wife and mother would do. When I talked to her about it, she hated cooking. She actually was bad at it. Nobody in her family particularly was supportive of this goal. Right. Uh, and but she just like there was this nagging sense that this is how a woman should be should be able to cook, mm. and so she kept recommitting to that goal and failing at it. And when we talked about what actually brought her meaning and joy, we came up with a whole bunch of other things that she actually was willing to invest her time and energy in with a very different outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what I call want power. Uh, you know, there are lots of ways to get in touch with want power. Um, because I teach meditation, I often share with people um, some traditional meditations that are meant to help you get in touch with the part of you who really wants to be happy uh-huh. and to be healthy. Um, but there are also uh, you know, great exercises coming out of modern psychology uh, that look at, at how you can actually remind yourself on a daily basis of what your values are. Right. You know, it's interesting, something that you just said was that and, and this, this comes up for me when I'm talking, when I'm thinking about desire versus really accepting the present moment and how things are. Mm. And are you, is one propelled a bit by a state of like not being satisfied with how things are? And what's that conflict oh, like yeah. where we keep being told like, you know, we need to accept the present moment and dig in. And yet I think it's healthy sometimes to feel a little frustration when things are not going 
well, because that's a kind of a, an ingredient for this change. I'm curious to see where you stand on that. Yes, this is a paradox that comes up all the time because I do teach meditation and I'm often in communities where people have really embraced the idea of acceptance, that we should accept things as they are right, and find a kind of peace around that. Um, and at the same time, um, we, we desire a kind of engagement with the world. And that engagement almost always is triggered by a gap between your ideals and what is in the present moment, whether it's a you know, gap between your ideal actions and your own behavior or your ideal world and the world you actually see when you look around. Um, and I, I actually have come to terms with this paradox in most directly through practice by discovering that when we actually accept things the way they are, really sincerely acknowledging and not, um, not resisting in a way that keeps you stuck, when we accept the way things are and then we reconnect with our values, it often propels us to take action that can transform what's present but with a very different flavor. And this can be true you know, for personal change or for much bigger change. And one way that I have people think about this, there's an exercise I like to do where I ask people to think about something in their life that they're resisting or highly self-critical of and to really like, check in with what that feels like in your body, what it, how much energy is available to you when you think about this thing that you hate and you, know, you, you wish it weren't true and you're so frustrated, and to notice how little energy is available for taking any kind of positive action. And then to flip it and think about something that brings you meaning or a really important value to you, uh, or even something that brings you joy, and to notice how much energy is available when that is what you put your focus on. And that's how I, I kind of think about pursuing goals, mm-hmm. that pursuing goals from a place of resistance, you know, the way things are is wrong, there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. I'm inadequate, my life is inadequate, everybody else needs... That, that doesn't actually give us energy for action. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, that's just the way that the human world works is action is required of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there doesn't have to be such a conflict between acceptance and engagement. Mm-hmm. Right. And so tell us a little bit more about this, because in the same token, especially in your book, self-acceptance is a key part. Yeah. So actually, so I had started off by talking about the four strengths, the four sets of resources we need. And the second one is, uh, is mindfulness, which right. includes an element of self-acceptance. Okay. Um, once you have a sense of what it is you'd like to create or maybe what it is you're ready to let go of, uh, you kind of have to understand the process of how you're creating the opposite, whether it means becoming aware of how it is that you lose your temper or how it is you procrastinate, or how it is that you end up smoking a pack of cigarettes every day, whatever the change is, to really uh, take a, a close, mindful look at what your triggers are, what it is you say to yourself. You know, is there a story you say, like, well, it'll be easier to change tomorrow, uh, and I trust that tomorrow is when I will begin this process of change, so today I don't really need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to notice all that stuff that's going on that ends up with the result of something you don't actually want or you don't want to continue. And uh, I sometimes use the word curiosity to describe how 
that how it is that we pay attention to the process. And that's very different than a process of trying to sort of analyze what's wrong so you can fix it. Um, when you when you get really curious about how something is unfolding, you end up seeing a lot more, mm. including maybe, you know, how your emotions are playing a role or the, you know, the friendly lies that we tell to ourselves that allow us to continue with a certain pattern. And from that curiosity often comes a, a, a genuine compassion for how difficult change is or how sticky certain behaviors are. Uh, and when you, you know, if you can actually see how your own self-doubt or uh, your own anger or loneliness is feeding a certain pattern, uh, it's actually hard not to feel compassion for yourself. And from that compassion and that awareness, uh, then we actually cultivate a kind of insight into ourselves that lets us make decisions about what we are going to do that would transform that pattern. And then that's when the second set of strengths comes in that um, we can talk about a little bit or just check in with you and see how that whole mindfulness thing feels. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I would love to hear that. It's, I love the curiosity. It was funny. I just did, uh, I just interviewed Elizabeth Gilbert and she, that was, Mm. she was so, that is her path is following curiosity. And what I love about it is that it's, objective in a way. Do you know when you're curious about something, you remove the attachment, so to speak, to an outcome or, um, you know, believing things should be in a certain way. So it's lovely. It's open. It feels receiving. It is. And this is why I love teaching from the science. Um, The book that you mentioned is based on a class I teach called The Science of Willpower. And this is a class I created direct response to people telling me they couldn't make changes in their lives. And, and I felt that sense of personal inadequacy, frustration. So many people felt like everyone else has willpower and I'm just kind of broken and I don't have any. Um, and the science actually helps us understand why change is difficult, why willpower can feel like a really limited resource, and also how actually we do have the capacity to really train these strengths and increase our willpower. And to bring in the science really supports the process of curiosity because right. people start to get very curious about well, how, how the human brain works and what right. does willpower look like in the brain? And uh, wait, you mean it's not just me? You mean stress uh, influences everyone's willpower and there's a reason why I run out of willpower at the end of the day when I'm exhausted and sleep deprived and stressed out? And I feel like the science gives people permission to see themselves from this point of view that is a little bit less judgmental and a little bit more open to seeing things that that we really do have the potential to change. Yes. And the other, I love that with the irony of it, and especially as you talk, and you are very researched and scientific and, you know, I've seen you speak and it's wonderful. You're also very feminine too. So I love that combo. <laughs> but you know, the curiosity, even though it's, it's very mandatory for science for to do science, right, but it's also very feminine, and that you're opening yourself up to receive rather than to, yes. you know, push out. And receiving was the word I when you said that curiosity was feminine, the word that just popped into my mind was that's because it's receptive, right? Exactly. So, and and the fact that that's such a key ingredient for science, it's just, it feels blended, integral. It's such a key 
uh, trait for intuition as well. Right. That when you're when you really are curious and open and receptive, it's actually a lot easier to get good information mm-hmm. that is not necessarily intellectual. That you you start to be more curious about why your body is feeling a certain way, and um, and how different sensations in the body, different these things that aren't exactly emotions, can actually give us real clues to the choices we're making. And this is one of the things that, you know, it's a little bit off of the traditional science of willpower training. But when I work with people to cultivate willpower, this is something I'm very interested in, is what is your ability to kind of tap into intuition as well, through directly sensing and and opening to information that perhaps your body is trying to give you, or that subtle emotions are are giving you. Well, You've just hit on something. Oh, now I want to go into 50 million different directions. But that (laughs) part of what I want to, I was curious about you being a woman in science and using science as a thrust for your work, but your work has far reaching implications in terms of consciousness and, and in the lives of women as we're trying, pushing for more transformation. And so you are crossing lines. And I'm curious to see if you've felt in the construct of science and research, limited in a way through that venue in getting at some of the truths that are coming up or expressing some of the truths that are coming up that may not be quantifiable? Well, I will say, you know, the the biggest frustration that I've had is the assumption that science is trying to prove the value of practices or qualities that frankly, I know are valuable, and I don't. I'm not interested in, in getting scientific evidence that compassion is, say, a good thing. Hallelujah! Um, or that meditation works. Right. And I feel it's often not just not actually. It doesn't even come so much from the scientific community, but it comes when people first encounter the idea of, say, a science of compassion or a science of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, people think that what we're trying to do is create propaganda and then convince everyone to do these practices. And my favorite research is the research that kind of reveals the process. Um, what do we know about what is required to cultivate compassion? I'm, you know, I'm going to start from having compassion as a value. I don't need science to prove to me that we should be compassionate. But I'm very interested in finding out what are the barriers to compassion and what are the best ways to cultivate it. And, and how are we transformed by practices? And so that's something that I find myself often running up against is both people skeptical of the science because they think it's all propaganda and also even a kind of um, uh, an, an enthusiasm for science from within the community that thinks that that's what science is offering, a kind of like, see, we told you you were right all along. And actually the best science is so much more provocative than that. I think um, you heard me describe one of my favorite studies that came out in the last year showing that when people cultivate compassion, the biggest change you see in the brain is the activation of the reward system of the brain that motivates us to consume things. You know, the system of the brain that motivates us to consume chocolate or to buy something or to have sex with someone. This is the system of the brain that is most transformed by the practice of compassion meditation but it actually motivates us to lean toward other people's suffering in the same way we would lean toward something that is desirable. Mm-hmm. And to see that in the brain, it actually it gives me a felt sense of what we're doing in the practice that has already improved 
how I teach compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of science I get most excited about. Well, I mean, for me, after hearing that talk, what it did for me was it changed how I was receiving the information. Because I, you know, I had, I hadn't heard it quite in that way. But the it made sense of why we're grasping at these things that we think that we want. Of course, I do want chocolate, but um, <laughs> I'm not going to cross that off the list. But but you know, there. When you think about it in terms of that that bigger picture, I feel so much more fulfilled, and I want to turn, like you said, I want to choose that other value because I would rather have that compassion and the self compassion feels more satisfying than some of the other short term thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it just makes sense. Well, yeah, I'm grabbing at these these things that aren't really good for me for that short-term satisfaction. But what I really want is over here. So that was the mind blow of the talk that I got when you were speaking and um, yeah, powerful. Yeah. And then, you know, something else that sometimes happens when I, so talking about the science of this stuff helps me get into doors that might otherwise be closed. Of course. Um, You know, like teaching executives um, Mm -hmm. and, technology workers uh, in Silicon Valley. But I will say that their questions, you have to be very careful how you answer them because I, I worry about bringing in practices or science that is going to end up reinforcing patterns of suffering or you know, patterns of personal suffering or suffering, uh, the harm that people are doing perhaps to others. Um, questions like one of the, the most striking questions I got recently was, what is the ROI of every five minutes I spend meditating? What is the return on investment? Yeah. And I thought like, and I actually, I mean, I, I had to take a risk and talk about the suffering that was embedded in that question. Mm -hmm. And it would be a lot easier to go out and say, well, actually here's a study that shows that five minutes a day decreased stress, this, this percent and increased, uh, you know, engagement at work, this percent, which there is science, that says that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's one of the things that I have to be careful about is, you know, when I come in with science, I don't necessarily need to present the science in a way that is uh, kind of inconsistent with the philosophy of what's being investigated. Right. So interesting. I mean, I just think the whole industry to science of, and, and back to the curiosity, which is why I was thinking your perspective was so much more open, that I do think that science is used in a more of a linear way without the curiosity. I'm not saying that at all is the true science has curiosity, but I think science these days, and I see it over and over when I'm looking at studies and that they're going in with a bias. And so the curiosity window is not so open. This just, is true. This yeah. is actually, this is something that scientists have to uh, also reflect on. I mean, it's, it's the science of everything. Everyone's going in, fingers crossed, hoping their hypothesis turns out to be correct so they can get the next uh, wave of funding right. to do more research. And uh, it's actually one of the reasons why things like mindfulness training is really helpful for scientists, too. I mean, uh, it's kind of it comes full circle, not just studying mindfulness, but mindfulness to do better science. Right. And I just might make a plug there for the, just the femininity of curiosity. If we can Mm -hmm. bring more of the femininity into the science, I think it would help protect the true science. And, you know, I think science had that whole industry has been over masculinized, like every area of our culture. Yeah. And and so, yeah. 
I agree. One of the best examples of that is that it seems very masculine that the only kind of science you can publish in a journal is proving that you were correct. There's no journal to publish a finding that says, I totally thought this was going to happen. And instead the opposite happened. And wow, I need to really rethink, you know, my assumptions about whatever it is I'm studying. You can't publish that paper. And in fact, if that happens, you have to pretend as if that's what you predicted all along. And that's how people put together articles. They just change their hypothesis and present what happened as if it was their, um, their thinking all along. And that seems like perhaps a particularly masculine way of trying to save face and, uh, and sort of be right. And I wish there, would, there could be more of this feminine attitude of discovery and, uh, and maybe a little bit of, of flexibility. That's a little scary. I didn't actually really know that. Oh, oops. <laughs> well, wow. you know, good scientists don't do that. But, you know, I mean, yeah. there's a whole range of, of shady practices in science all the way to fabricating data, which is right. rare, but not, uh, you know, not non-existent. Well, I mean, you know, what scares me the most about that is that it just kills creativity. Yeah. You know, so once again, I mean, these practices are being morphed in different ways across different sectors. And it's just so interesting to hear how it's playing out within science. But I want to go back to I know you had you were going to do two more points. And I want to get those in. But one more thing I had a question about mindfulness. And we're talking Mm -hmm. about this mindfulness in terms of creating change. Can we bring it back to the very impetus of change, almost like where you went to the want power? How can we use mindfulness? And is that the right technique? But a lot of times people don't even know what they want. They can't identify their desires. And that's where I find like a lot of women that are going to be listening to this, they're either at that stage of like, what is it that I want? I know I have so much fire and I have so my purpose and, or they're, they've identified what they want, but they just, you know, can't figure out the steps. How do you use, and maybe it's not mindfulness. How do you tap into that desire? Well, it is a kind of mindfulness. Well, so my, well, okay. So let me give you a definition of mindfulness that, that creates a, a little bit of a, a loop here. Okay. So the definition of mindfulness I like comes from Shauna Shapira, who's a, a, a psychologist at Santa Clara University. And uh, she came up with this, this very simple definition that mindfulness has an intention, quality of attention, how you pay attention, and uh, a certain attitude that is accepting and compassionate. But it, it kind of begins with intention, the assumption that you are already oriented towards something that matters, whether it's your own health and well-being or, uh, you know, faith, spirituality, family, that there's something that you are oriented toward and you apply this quality of attention and this attitude of acceptance and compassion, you apply it to that intention. And so in a way, you really do need to figure out what you want before mindfulness comes into full play But you can kind of go backwards. And I found that when you train a quality of attention and you try to bring in an attitude of acceptance and curiosity and self-compassion, it does make it easier to identify an intention or a goal. Uh And so one of the practices that I use um, is a meditation practice of asking yourself questions. And there are a lot of different versions of this. Um, I have versions for people who are dealing with chronic pain and illness, uh, 
versions related to anxiety and depression, but there's a really basic one where you simply ask yourself, uh, if anything were possible, what would I welcome or create in my life? Hmm. Second question is, when I'm feeling most courageous and inspired, what do I want to offer the world? And the third question is, when I'm honest about how I suffer, what am I willing to let go of or what do I want to make peace with? And the meditation is not trying to answer those questions from the intellectual mind, but of repeating those questions in your own mind and then sitting in silence with your body and the breath and what it feels like to ask yourself those questions. And my experience is that when you approach the practice of figuring this stuff out in that way with basically mindfulness, um, you start to get images and you start to get memories and you start to get ideas that are different than what would come if you tried to answer those questions intellectually. Right. Beautiful. And I love how you're bringing in the body also, because it's so easy in meditation, especially to ignore that piece. And I'm a little bit obsessed with the body. I mean, I just, whether you look at the science or you look at the the actual process and, and talk to people about their experiences, the body is where it's at when it comes to cultivating these, these qualities of compassion or self control. And I ended up, I've now ended up bringing in the body to pretty much everything I do, whether we're talking about recovering from addiction and using yoga practice and and uncomfortable sensations as a way of training for that moment of craving or withdrawal um, to to using the body as a way to cultivate self-compassion by actually embodying the the feeling state and the attitude of of nurturing and care. Uh, I mean, just the body... The body's such an amazing vehicle. Yes. I always say that the emotional realm is actually, it's within the physical realm. The emotions the and mind physical, is in the body. Connected. And the mind That's- is in the body, right? Well, that, that one I always forget. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's so easy to just cut yourself off. We think off. the mind is the brain. Right. And the brain is this one component of the mind. And if you, if you think about the mind as being your memories, your emotions, your thoughts, your sense of identity, your sense of self, these are just as much created by every other system of your body, your, your physical heart, your immune system, and especially interoception and proprioception, your ability to sense your own body plays a huge role in our emotions and in our sense of self. And it actually turns out to be a very healthy way to be in touch with our emotions and to have a sense of self that is not dictated by other people's uh, preferences or, you know, stories in your head about who you are and the way you should be. Right. You know, when people come back to their body, yeah, it, it almost always creates a healthier version of whatever people are experiencing, even if it's suffering. Right. Oh, it's so good. And of course, the feminine lives in the body. Is that right? That- is that, is that a, an um, understanding? That is... That's the current understanding. I feel like the masculine energy tends to be live more. And and again, you're using body in a different way. So you're bringing the mind into it. But the masculine is more about mind and mental energy. And this (laughs) goes back to, you know, different, I don't know what school you want to be part of here, whether it's yin yang or, um, but then feminine is more about the body It's sort of like earth 
feminine expression is like more alive in the heart and in the body and in the physical yeah. gross representation of ourselves as humans. And masculine tends to be more like consciousness and mental states. Huh, interesting. And well, there's a lot of research that shows that when you get stuck in mental states, mental states of, uh, you know, making up stories and having false conversations in your head, like lots of us do, mm-hmm. uh, and and just thinking, 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 that dropping to the body uh, really reduces the suffering of that, you know, yoga, you would call it the chitta vritti, but the, the disturbances of the mind that are just, it really are characterized by thinking, thinking, thinking. And when you bring in feeling, it, uh, it really, it changes that experience in a very helpful way. Yay. Yeah. Let's see if we have time to get to your third and your fourth, because yeah, I mean, yeah. we're stuck here on mindfulness. Not a bad place to get stuck to, but if we want to make change, what are yeah. other? Yeah, so the, the other two are what I call I will power and I won't power. And I won't power is like the classic um, version of self-control and willpower. It's the ability to delay gratification, to resist impulses that that are inconsistent with your goals and values, whether it's not, you know, not saying something that you're going to regret later on or mm. not eating too much of that chocolate that you're craving or mm. resisting, uh, you know, something that you might even be addicted to, your cell phones or cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, I just saw that Sesame Street has a whole new series on this aspect of willpower coming up for the new fall season. And Cookie Monster has a song called I Can Wait. Actually, I think it's called Me Can Wait because he hasn't fully grasped grammar yet. Right. Um, and it's amazing. And he Fabulous. talks about playing gratification. And, um, and that's I won't power. And we really do need that, that we need to train the skill of slowing down, mm. pausing, and, and not giving into immediate impulses. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can train that in all sorts of ways. One of the best ways to do it is actually seated meditation because the minute you sit down, your mind wants to go one way and you have to pull it back and your body immediately wants to get up or fidget and you cannot stand sitting still. And, uh, and you have to find a way to resist those impulses. And one of the cool things from the science of willpower is that it, it suggests that when you train this sort of basic process of being able to find the pause between impulse and reaction, it translates to any willpower challenge. It's a kind of generalized strength. So um, when I, you know, when I'm encouraging people to apply this to a real challenge, you can practice really short delayed gratification. You know, it could be that the first time that you notice you want a cigarette, maybe in the beginning, all you're doing is delaying it by five minutes. Maybe right now is not the time to go cold turkey, but you practice noticing the impulse and delaying it. Mm -hmm. And eventually that five minutes can become 10 minutes. And eventually people figure out what to do in that 10 minutes. That allows them to ride out the craving to smoke a cigarette. Um, And I really encourage people to try these small doses of I won't power. Uh, You know, another common example that comes up a lot is people feeling addicted to their devices. And I um, I have students who sleep with their phones. And the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning is check their email and text and social media. And, uh, you know, to practice I won't power, all you have to do is get out of bed. You just have to get out of bed first. Right. And that's a form of strengthening this ability. Um, 
So another way to train I won't power that's really simple is every time you go shopping, when you're in the checkout line, you look at your cart and you put one thing back that you don't really need and maybe with an impulse buy. And uh, that, that's a practice of really noticing what you're doing and making a choice that could be consistent with your goals uh, or that, that restrains uh, the kind of sort of short-term desire that sometimes gets us into trouble. And it doesn't even matter if saving money is your primary goal because when you understand that what you're doing is practicing this bigger I won't power, that ability to, to do so is going to show up when you really need it, you know, when your impulses are really pulling you away from your goals and your values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's, once again, now we're getting down to that moment by moment rather mm-hmm. than the focusing too much on the future it seems that if you're really just f- looking at these little tiny moments, that that's how you, and I think yeah. you, you talk about building the muscle, right? Yeah. And this is, this is so important. You have to get into the process of change. Um, one of my meditation teachers has the saying, not what, but how. Yeah. And we sometimes get so focused on our goal. This is what I want to have in my life. Mm-hmm. But the process of change requires the how. And, um, when people cannot figure out the full how, like let's say I have a goal to get out of credit card debt and I don't know how to do it tomorrow, then sometimes we give up on the goals because we cannot even conceive of how I'm going to get from where I am to where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And the how that matters is not the how you're going to reach some sort of end goal of total transformation. The how is what can you do today that is consistent with that goal and it only needs to be consistent. It needs to reflect the goal. It doesn't have to get you to the goal. And that is truly how the process of change works. Uh, small, tiny commitments, little experiments that are strengthening, not just strengthening the willpower muscle, but also strengthening your goal. And the, the final path reveals itself as you are taking one small step forward. Right. We're just out of time here, but I want to just take it a little bit into your personal life, if that's okay. I'm curious to know (laughs) if you could give us some example of how this work really challenged you and how you kept maybe falling back into old patterns, but then you had the one breakthrough where this really propelled you and, and then sort of solidified your work. And the reason I'm asking this is because a lot of women that are part of the Emerging Women audience are in that point where they're taking courageous steps to follow the truth, their particular truth. For you, it's this work and other people have different things. And yet they have setbacks and it's, you know, the two steps forward, one step back, but then there's a tipping point. And I'm curious to hear if you have wisdom or if you yeah. could tell us about yours so that it could help others. Yes. Well, so I have an example that is, uh, was really hard and has been really important for me. Um, and it actually is an example of the one strength that we didn't get to talk about by willpower, mm. which is the ability to do things even when anxiety or pain, discomfort or self-doubt are present, to find the ability to step toward what matters, to, to take action, even when in every cell in your body is screaming, don't do it, don't do it, you're too mm-hmm. tired, it'll be too hard, you'll make a fool of yourself. And for me, um, my big willpower challenge, I willpower challenge, was a fear of flying that was a true panic, phobia, 
irrational, um, you know, like panic attacks, just thinking about having to fly in the future. And for years, I refused to fly. Wow. And I kind of tried to protect myself from my own anxiety by setting a rule, but I just didn't do it. And I, I just couldn't help but notice the consequences of that choice in my personal life, my professional life, not being able to see family whenever I wanted to, mm-hmm. not being able to take opportunities that were important. And I got to tell you, this was the last thing that changed. I have used mindfulness and self-compassion to transform all sorts of things, my experience with pain, my physical health, lots of other goals that I achieved. But this fear of flying was the last thing to be transformed by this process. But it came about in the same way as every other positive change that I've had, which is that at a certain point, I couldn't be in denial anymore that I was increasing my own suffering by choosing fear over choosing action. And over the process of, you know, maybe five years or so, I started to take small steps that included flying. And now I fly on planes every week, almost. Uh, And it's not a particularly traumatic or even stressful experience anymore, but it required tolerating incredible fear and discomfort. You know, to to be the example I give is that I would be walking down the the gangway to get into a plane and there'd be a voice in my head that was like saying, turn around, like run like hell. You're not doing it. And I, I had to get comfortable with having that, that real sense of urgency and fear and at the same time, allow my body to keep taking one step forward. And it's, it's this process of, of living with the, this, these opposites and really, you know, grabbing on to the part of me that wants the consequence of flying. And the willingness to do that transformed the, the fear and the experience of flying. And now people ask me, that, well, how is that flight? I know you're so afraid of flying. I have to be like, oh, right. I guess I'm afraid of flying. I don't know anymore. Because wow. I do it all wow. the time. Anyways, that's, that's my example. And I, anyone who's had a, a real phobia will hopefully will appreciate. Um, that's yeah. actually, you know, it's, it's kind of on par with addictions and other challenges mm-hmm. that really can really constrict your life. Yeah, or that are debilitating and or fear that yeah. things won't work out financially or that I'm yeah. not big enough or I'm not good enough and all yeah. any it could really be applied to anything. Mm-hmm. So. Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I feel like I, once again I'm on the phone with somebody who I could talk to, you know, for 3 hours and maybe still not get enough. So I just I so uh, appreciate the time and the insight. Well, and we'll get to continue this conversation. Yes. At, at, uh, the pumper. So excited. So excited. Oh, and we'll, you'll be talking about two different, we should just mention that you'll be talking about the science of change and your workshop is a little different. Taking the leap. How to transform yeah. habits and tap into your inner wisdom and go after what you really want. That's yeah. going to be fantastic. Kind of what we've been talking about. We're yes. going to actually do. We're going to do it. We're talking about. <laughs> we'll do those exercises. Uh, we'll embody some stuff. Yeah. You'll be holding our hands through that process. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, looking forward to it, Kelly. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.